0: Well, the carol that we're reflecting on today as part of this Songs of Christmas series is the one that was just sung, What Child is This? And it was written by the manager of an insurance company um, back in 1865. William Dix had suffered unexpected and severe illness that rendered him bedridden and suffering from severe depression. And in 1865, the terrible civil war that tore our nation apart had just ended. And though the war had ended, the divisions had not. And so, if there's a song that sounds like it was written for our times, this is it. A time fraught with illness and national division unheard of. And if as I d- prepared for today, I find out that everybody, I think almost every artist ever has recorded this carol, from the Highland Bagpipes to John Denver to Puddle's Pity Party, who is a singing clown. And <laughs> if you go on Spotify and you search for recordings of this carol, um, there are a boatload of versions. I stopped counting at 1,000. Okay. Um, And I wonder if if it's not because, one, the haunting melody, but also um, the questions, the critical questions that the song raises for us. There are two profound questions that shape the songwriter's lyrics. The first is, what child is this? And the second is, why does he lie in such mean estate? Let's look at that first question. It's in the very first verse. What child is this who's laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? What kind of child asleep on his mother's lap is heralded both by angels and shepherds alike? Um, And here the songwriter has in mind that account of the birth of Jesus from Luke chapter 2. This is a good A good season to hear this read aloud. So let me read it for you. Luke chapter 2. Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So this angelic welcome, right, that would be the highest, most esteemed of welcomes. And the shepherds would have been the opposite. They were among the least esteemed. And so this child being heralded by angels on the one hand and shepherds on the other the highest of the high, the lowest of the low, it forms a kind of inclusio, right? Brackets that tells us this child is to be heralded by and for all. What kind of child, the songwriter asks, gets this kind of welcome? And he tells us in the very next line, this, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. So the child is, is a king. The idea that this little one in Mary's lap is a king is a theme that runs throughout Scripture, especially the New Testaments, all over the New Testament. It begins with these words, as Daniel Cresswell taught us last week. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Christ means anointed one or anointed king. That's how the New Testament starts. Jesus Christ. The anointed king. The wise men are searching for him. Where is he who has been born? King of the Jews. When Jesus calls Nathaniel to be his disciple, Nathanael answers him and says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. The crowds pursued Jesus. And it says, um, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew. When Jesus entered Jerusalem for the final time, on Palm Sunday, he rode on that donkey in fulfillment of the prophet Zechariah's words, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey. And as he entered the city on that same Palm Sunday, the multitudes, they declare palm branches, Throwing him down, they go out to meet him and they cry, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. When Jesus stands trial before Pilate, this exchange took place. Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. And Pilate then resolutely nailed that saying above Jesus' head on the cross. You remember? You remember? It continues in the book of Acts. The disciples are accused of making Jesus king. Acts 17. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So clearly, time and time again, page after page after page of the New Testament, Jesus is presented to us as king. The Bible declares on every page, it seems, this babe in the manger is a king. Now, in our day, we've lost the sense of what it means to be king. It's much more than a president or a prime minister. You didn't blog against the king back in the day, right? A king has much more authority. When a king, there's no checks and balances. There are no other branches of government. The allegiance due one's king was absolute. You didn't have dual allegiances to multiple kings. And in the third verse of our carol, the songwriter exalts Jesus even more. He says, so bring him incense, gold, myrrh, come peasant, king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. So here he's referring to the wise men, right? Bringing those gifts to the Christ child, incense, gold, and myrrh. And again, he makes that same point from peasant to king. The child king brings salvation for all people but now his title is even greater. Did you catch it? This is no mere king. Here in Mary's lap lies the king of kings. And the Bible closes the book of Revelation, uh, in the book of Revelation, talking about Jesus, the one who reigns over his kingdom forever in chapter 11. A seventh angel blows his trumpet, and loud voices in heaven say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And just a page or two later it says they will make war on the lamb and the lamb who is Christ will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called chosen are called and chosen and faithful. So this child on Mary's lap is no mere king. He's the king of kings. He's the king of all as we've seen, from the highest to the lowest and all in between. And there's no one that, I, that I've run across who declares the kingship of Jesus more powerfully than Pastor S.M. Lockridge, who was, a, who was the pastor for 40 years at Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego. This is a little video clip we often watch at Easter. But this morning, I want us to watch it and grasp who this babe in Mary's lap truly is, watch this short video with me.
1: He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a well frame of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His is everlasting, his love never changes, his word is enough, his grace is sufficient, his reign is righteous, and his yoke is easy, and his burden is lighter, I wish I could describe him, but yet he's indescribable, he's incomprehensible, he's invincible, he's irresistible, well, you can't get him out of your mind, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Tyler couldn't find any fault in him. Terror couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah!
0: And he's in the manger what's he doing in the manger that King that's where our song goes that's the next question why does he lie here in such mean estate but before we go there is he your king is your allegiance to him supreme is it unrivaled is it comprehensive Every area of your life, no little pockets of resistance. You see, your king, are you his devoted subject? Would your family say that about you? Would your co-workers say that about you? Would your neighbors say that about you? Would your classmates say that about you? This Christmas, you can make him king and bow the knee more fully than you ever have to Jesus Christ, who's the King of kings. It's simply a matter of forsaking your sin and casting your hope and trust in Him, the crucified and risen King, King of kings and Lord of lords. And The discovery of the kingship of the child in Mary's lap is what raises that second question in our song. Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass or other animals that don't remind you of embarrassing body parts are feeding, right? I think we changed it to lamb in our recording. But the original, I think, talks about a donkey. Um, So if, if even the angels are heralding the birth of this king, the king of kings, what's he doing here in such mean estate? That doesn't mean unkind estate. It means meager or poor estate, though, though his estate will turn mean in the other sense shortly, angry, harassing, life-threatening sense just shortly on a page or two. But the question is, why is the king of kings born into such poverty of circumstance? And I, I love the way the counter-melody that Nick Sang put it. Who is this who lives with the lowly, sharing their sorrows, knowing their hunger? This is Christ revealed to the world in the eyes of a child, a child of the poor. And beyond the poverty of their circumstance, right, in the manger. Just a few days later at the ritual of his circumcision carried out in the temple, it was on the eighth day. Um, According to Jewish law, his parents brought the offering of the poor, two turtle doves or two pigeons, and according to Leviticus, the only reason this was acceptable, this offering was acceptable, was because they couldn't afford the normal offering of a lamb. Listen listen back to Leviticus 12 where this law is stated, when the days of of a mother's purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtledove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtledoves or two pigeons one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering and the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. So why would the king of kings, with all the wealth and renown that that title would merit, be born to such a poor couple that they can't even afford the normal offering at the birth of their child? But again, as we sing on, the songwriter gives us the answer in the next few lines. Good Christians fear for sinners here. The silent word is pleading. Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. So he entered into this poverty for us, for sinners like you and me. This willing embrace of unjust poverty and unjust suffering. He didn't deserve either. This he did for us. See, the depth of his sacrificial, humble love is such that his incarnation amongst a poor family was just the first step of his down a descending staircase of love and humility that would lead eventually to the cross. Philippians 2 famously chronicles it for us. The Apostle Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The King of kings and the Lord of lords descends to the lowest place, from manger to cross. I love the way St. Augustine put it so long ago. He says, our Lord came down from life to suffer death. The bread came down to hunger. The way came down on the way to weariness. The fount came down to thirst. He so loved us that for our sake he was made man in time although through him all times were made. He was made man who made man. He was created of a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he formed. He cried in the manger in wordless infancy, he the word without whom all human eloquence is mute. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. And being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. His humility makes him obedient even unto death. There are no limits to his humility. There are no limits to his obedience. How low he would go for us, even unto death on a cross. Jesus, the New Testament teaches us, was born so that he might die. Remember Mark chapter 10 that we studied this year. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's a blogger named Trevin Wax. His thoughts on this are really helpful. He says, imagine the humility it took for Jesus to die there on the cross. Here he was, nailed to a cross by soldiers whom he created. He was raised up into the sky on beams of wood from the trees that he made. He looked into the eyes of the people who killed him, and he knew their names, their histories, their destinies. The creator was slain by his creation. The shepherd was slain by his sheep. Talk about obedience unto death. The creator of life submitted to death. This, he says, is the ultimate humiliation. And here Paul is saying, This is God. This is what God is like. Rethink everything you've ever thought about God and his power and majesty and watch that dying man nailed to a tree, gasping for breath, and see in his death the God of self-giving love. He says, Caesar ruled by putting others on the cross. Jesus ruled by putting himself there. Our carol Put it this way, the silent word is pleading. Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. So the incarnation, the son of God's putting on human flesh that first Christmas is the first step of humble love that led to the cross, which was born for me and and for you. He who has come amongst the poor, amongst us, to plead for us and to die for us, this is Jesus. There's a third question in our song that's implied, and it's this. What do you do with this kind of love? How do you respond to this royal humility? And the lyrics in the song say it again and again. We worship. Haste, haste. To bring him laud. Hail, hail, the word made flesh. Raise, raise, a song on high. Over and over again it says it. The language is ancient. A little cryptic to us. Bring him laud. It simply means bring him praise. It has nothing to do with lard. Okay, It's a word that means praise. To hail him. It's not like hailing a cab. It's like hail Caesar. It's the exalting and honoring of someone. And so when our king humbles himself, so we worship him above all others. We sing his praises. So let me talk to those of you who are non-singers, right? You're not on the worship team. You're never going to be asked to be on the worship team, okay? In fact, as an act of selfless love, you just mutely move your lips in corporate worship so as not to distract anyone around you, right? You know who you are. So, so this Christmas, sing. Sing worship to the king who deserves your praise. Find a safe space in your car alone, in the shower. Get your phone out. Pull up your favorite carol, this one, and sing, worship the king of kings who's born right there on Mary's lap on that Christmas day. Charles Spurgeon said it beautifully. He said, the lower he stoops to save us, the higher we ought to lift him in our adoring reverence. And then our carol adds this little response in addition to our hasty laud, right? Let loving hearts enthrone him. Honor him as king. Enthrone him in your heart above all others. Obey him. That's how you honor a king. That's how you become a devoted subject with loving, worshipful obedience how ought that look for you this Christmas what shape what new shape should your obedience take this Christmas we like to close our time today with a simple and powerful way to do just that to worship and obey and that's to celebrate the supper together the Lord's Supper in loving, worshipful obedience to his command for us to remember him in this way. And so as you take the elements today, will you enthrone him as the unrivaled, supreme authority in your life? And for some of you, that could be the first time that rather than come to the table, you would simply bow your head in prayer and confess your sins and embrace Christ as your Savior and your King. But for the rest of us who follow this King already, this is a time to consecrate areas of our life where we've retaken the throne, where we have attitudes or actions that exalt me instead of thee, right? And so if you'll bow with me now, we'll have just a couple of minutes of reflection and confession before we approach the table and the elements are brought to you. Um, the Lord's Supper's open to anyone who's a follower of Jesus who's walking in fellowship with him. If you are willing to forsake and confess your sin and run to Christ, this table is open to you. Um, and once the elements are served to you today, just hold on to them until everyone is served and we'll take them all, all together once everyone has been served. So let's bow for that time of reflection and confession of sin. on the night on which he was betrayed. Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. It is broken for you. Bow with me in prayer, please. We come this last Sunday in Advent to you, O God, the giver of every good and perfect gift, to give thanks for your provision of the bread of life, Jesus the Christ. We give thanks because you have sustained us by your Spirit for the journey that we take with you. Even as you sustained the Hebrew people with manna in the wilderness, you offer us your Son, our Savior, Jesus the Christ. As we take this bread, we do so in remembrance of his life, of his death, and of his resurrection, which provides us with life in its fullness, even for all eternity. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, take and eat. In the same way, after the meal, he took a cup and he explained that this cup was the new covenant in his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Let us pray. We give thanks to you, our God, for the gift of the cup of our salvation. We come to remember and receive the healing and hope that is promised in the story of Christmas. We come in the knowledge that in the one we call Emmanuel, you are present with us. And as we take this cup, may we fully experience your saving grace, reconciling us to you by the cleansing of all of our sins. May these elements of bread and juice convey your presence to each and all of us so that we might go forth into the world as bearers of your light. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Take and drink.